All right, book of Jeremiah, back to chapter 7, Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. We made it all the way down on Wednesday, down to verse 12. The goal here for this hour is to at least try to finish chapter 7 to the best of our ability. Again, not even though we're covering every single verse or at least reading every single verse, we're not trying to do a traditional verse-by-verse approach, but at times it's difficult knowing then what to really dig into and what to go, oh, we're just going to pass this over, but we'll, we'll continue to try to make those decisions. I'm going to use the um, Bible study guide to begin because it offers understand the context. So just once again, to give us the context, I read this on Wednesday Read this again just to help us understand. Now, the context they're trying to provide for us goes from chapter 7, verse 1, all the way to what they believe ends at chapter 10, verse 25. And so they give us one, two, three, four paragraphs trying to put this all into some kind of context. And here's what they say. And everyone hopefully does remember this. When we start in chapter 7, what, where does, what does chapter 7, verse, I think, 1 and 2 begin with? Does anybody remember? All right, so yeah, Jeremiah is sent to the temple, really, right? To basically deliver his next message. So that's how this begins. The Lord sent Jeremiah to the gate of the temple to deliver his next message. The prophet warned the people not to trust the deceitful words of those who insisted that Jerusalem and its inhabitants were safe from judgment simply because the temple was in their midst. Instead, their only hope to avert God's judgment was to repent and return to the Lord and faithful worship and service. Now, let's stop right there with that paragraph. Remember, we did at least challenge this, that it does appear in Jeremiah that the answer, well, they're they're told over and over all the things that they're doing wrong, yes? And it appears that the supposed solution to all of their problems is to just simply do the right thing. However, what we know is when we look back, what do we find? disobedience and not doing the right thing. When we look to the present in Jeremiah's day, they're not doing the right thing. And when we look to the future all the way to when Christ comes, which is what, 600 years, and he shows up, what is Israel still doing? Not not doing the right thing, right? In fact, the temple is just as much as a mess as it had, had been when they corrupted it in this period of time. And so, and in moving forward, obviously Israel, the destruction that happens in 70 AD, so they don't quote and, you know, they don't quote fix their problems. And then once the Israel is kind of no longer the focus and the focus becomes on the church, immediately when you start reading the New Testament, what do we find over and over and over as the uh, apostles address the church? They're not doing the right thing either. So whether it's Israel or whether it's the church, what do both have in common? (laughs) Sin, corruption. And and, and so I I just think that that is, I think it's an important part because uh, a part of this story or the important part of reading Jeremiah because most read Jeremiah and then they just take the, like, hey, guys, do these four things. Like they just preach it like a list of to do, do this and don't do this. And I may be convicting, but there's got to be a bigger story than that since they never pulled it off. 
I don't think the early church ever pulled it off, and we don't pull it off. There has to be a different way of approaching it. So we looked at some of these passages as being more law-based versus then gospel-based and trying to look at a gospel approach, all right? Uh, God rejected the people's sacrifice because of their hypocrisy. They acted like they were devoted to the Lord while at the same time worshiping other gods. They were even sacrificing their children in the Valley of Hinnom uh, to those gods. Jeremiah declared that the Valley of Hinnom would be called the Valley of Slaughter because scavengers would devour the carcasses of the idolaters in that place. And they focus on Jeremiah 7, 16 through chapter 8, verse 3, which we'll uh, look at this morning to some level. The people claimed to be wise because they had God's law, but they continually behaved in ways contrary to its demands. What's more, the religious leaders misled the people by causing them to believe all was well when God's judgment was imminent. Because Judah refused to repent, the Lord was sending an army from the north that would devastate the land and wipe out its inhabitants. All that would be left, all that would be left for them would be, would be to mourn and lament because of their destruction and exile. Those who thought they were wise, strong, or wealthy, must not boast in those things. God alone is faithful, just, and righteous. And that seems to cover chapter 8, verse 4, to chapter 9, verse 26. Then the last paragraph, Jeremiah praised the Lord, declaring there is no one like him. The Lord alone is the true and living God, an external and eternal king. Next, the prophet expressed his grief over the impending annihilation of Judah, pleaded with God to be merciful in his judgment, He also asked the Lord to be sure to punish the nations that had brutalized his people. That's chapter 10, verses 1 through 25. That is at least kind of a summary of all of that. We'll use that summary to some level and then kind of just dig in and see what we can find. Sounds good? All right. So if we go to chapter 7 and... I think we'll just go back to verse 12 because that's kind of where uh, the, we kind of ended. Um, there, there is some stuff we could go before that. Um, if, you go, if you go to, say, verse 10, Jeremiah 7.10, I know trying to jump back into this is always you know, difficult, but at least to try to give us some kind of context. Jeremiah 7.10, we read these words, And come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Everybody see that in chapter 7, verse 10? What do you think is being said there in Jeremiah 7, 10? We'll just kind of jump in and offer a question. If I read this in a different translation, okay, the NIV says, Okay, yes, this one says, then, then do you come and stand before me in the house that bears my name and say, we are rescued so we can continue doing all these detestable acts. Now, the, the point here is they, they seem, that there was a couple of things going on. They seem to feel that they were safe, possibly because they had the temple, right? Uh, possibly because they had God's law, possibly because God was supposedly in their midst. 
Um, and they felt safe. And not only did they feel safe, they felt safe to be able to continue to do whatever they wanted to do. And at least in the, uh, the with the word commentary, they kind of pick this theme up and they say this. All right. God told Jeremiah to preach a sermon at the gate of the temple and tell the people that their confidence was unfounded because they were trusting in the wrong things. Now, if you look at this, if they come there and say, basically, we are safe, right? Um, if, they, if they feel that they are safe and that they can continue to co- commit these abominations or these acts, look at verse 11. Uh, is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. They, they are committing these acts. God is very aware. He's not happy with what they've done with the temple. It's kind of interesting He refers to it as a den of thieves because typically a den of thieves is like a hideout. Nobody can find it, but God is like, I have seen what you've done. But it seems that they they feel this safety, this like, we're okay. And this commentary is arguing that the reason they feel this safety is because they're trusting in the wrong things. So what things would they be trusting in that's giving them this sense of I don't want to say entitlement, but this sense of protection. Well, it seems that they're trusting either in just the physical elements of their worship, like like the temple, the buildings, the the, they may be uh, they may be feeling safe because of their religion, the religious practices, sacrifices, things along those lines. Maybe they feel safe because of God's presence. Maybe they feel safe because of having God's law but they seem to be trusting in everything that may be related to God, but they're not trusting in him, right? It's like, it's, it, to me, it's a, I, th- I think there's a, a concept here that we can't miss and we have to really try to think this through. At what point does your, and we'll apply it to us, at what point does your Christianity become more about Christianity than it is Christ. Like, like your Christianity becomes the alternative to actually God, right? Your, your doctrine, your theology, your denomination, your church, your friends, it, your, it becomes a, I mean, I hate to say it, but it becomes almost like a cultural thing, right? Hey, you, 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 I know it's very, it's a very fine line and I don't know if I can articulate it in a way that that can really get your attention. But I think that there is a very, I think at some point, the longer you become a Christian, Christianity just becomes an element in your life, right? You go to church. Why do you go to church? Well, you always go to church. It's not, it doesn't mean that you don't care about it, but you just go to church. You may go to church because of friends, of family, because you like the community aspect. You you like whatever, Um and, and the next thing you know, really, if you think about it, you're involved in activity, you're involved in talk, but it all becomes about something other than Christ himself. Christ, in a th- I know it's hard to con- contemplate this or to really even imagine this, but is it possible that over time, Christianity replaces Christ as, in a sense, their religion, their religious practices, really replaced God. Hey, we don't need God. Look what we've got. And the commentary at least kind of points this out. 
at least in, and, and to some level. Let me read this again. God told Jeremiah to preach a sermon at the gate of the temple and to tell the people that their confidence was unfounded because they were trusting in the wrong things. The false prophets were saying nothing can happen to Jerusalem because the temple is here. We are safe because we offer sacrifices to the Lord. We have the ark of God's covenant and the throne of the Lord, and we have the law of God. So those are some of the things that they list here, that they had prophets saying that they were safe. They had sacrifices, they had the ark, and they had the law. And this gave them a sense of security, but they were trusting in all of the wrong things. The next paragraph is the temple, the sacrifices, the ark and the law were indeed precious things, but they could not be used to please God apart from the sincere devotion of the people to the Lord. The people were hiding their sins behind religion. Now I understand they want to focus on the hiding of the sin. I don't know how much they were hiding it. They seemed pretty, I mean... That, that, that seems pretty bold, right? That, that verse right there seems pretty bold. That was, well, which verse did we read? Seven, was it 10? Yeah, and come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. We're safe to do all of these things. That To me, they're not hiding it. To me, they're very, they're flaunting it. They're flaunting it. But I think in a, in a subtle way, religion replaced I, re, I, I know we'll use the term relationship because that's a, that's a pretty common term, term in, in the Protestant world but I'm just going to say that something happened like instead of God focused it becomes religion focused and, and, and Christians love to say Christianity is not a religion it's a relationship and I understand that that, that cliche and that terminology but I think in many cases, no matter how much we want to talk about a supposed relationship, Christianity is obviously just as much as a religion as any other religion, right? It's got all the elements of a religion. If you look up the definition of a religion, it's a religion, right? Even James refers to religion. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad word, but it, the word becomes bad when, in a roundabout way, here's God, that's the focus, that you what you believe in, that's what you're supposed to be pursuing, and then slowly, God gets pushed to the side, and it becomes about, well, all I can call it is Christianity. It becomes about morality, right? It becomes about, almost it becomes a part of your culture, your life. It becomes about friends and, and quote-unquote fellowship. It becomes about everything other than it actually is. It becomes about everything other than it is. I, w- I was just reading, there's a, I, c- I don't, I could find the article, I saved it. But it's a, a new group trying to help people who leave the church find that same sense of community, that same sense of fellowship, because that's what the people miss. The people who leave Christianity, they miss, <laughs> they, they miss the church as a sense of community and meeting people and friends. And it's like, if that's all you miss from Christianity, that seems to tell me that your Christianity was nothing more than that. Hey, man, that was such a wonderful part of Christianity is going to church and meeting people and have community and fellowships and get together and small groups. Where, like, shouldn't you be missing the idea that you used to believe there is a God and now you don't? Like, God is not even missed because everything else replaces it. So I, I think there's something to that that has to be 
discuss, we could spend forever. This commentary at least pursues it a little bit. They go on to say this. The so-called revival under King Josiah in 2 Kings 22 to 23 was merely a surface reformation. It did not change the hearts of the people. Again, I'm going to argue, is that not the entire story from beginning to end? Right? Over and over and over and over and over. I mean... They, they, all of their supposed repentance, and, and it never happens. And then this is the last paragraph. Never be satisfied with surface religion. Be sure that God ministers to your heart and that you obey him from the heart. The only way to have confidence is to build on the rock, and the only way to build on the rock is to obey what he says. Now, once again, the commentary does what all Christian commentaries do, and it goes back to what's the solution? Obey, 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 obey. It's just, it's a never-ending drumbeat. Look, fix all your problems by obeying, but no one ever does. So someone at some point has to raise their hand and go, hey, this obedience thing isn't working. But I do like the fact that they refer to it as a surface religion, okay? But I I don't know if we call this surface. I, I call this replacing God with religion. Replacing God with religion. I think some people, Christianity is more their thing, not God. God is not their thing. Christianity is their thing. God is not their thing. Churchianity is their thing. Right? It becomes about church. It becomes about, it becomes about people. It becomes about doctrine. It becomes about all of these issues and God gets slowly replaced. Now, those things you would think should be there to drive you to God. Right? So you see why it can be deceitful? Because you would be like, no, all of these things are getting me closer to God. But you may not even realize you're not getting any, are they getting any closer to God with the temple, with the sacrifices, with the prophets? No, they're not. So in some ways, the very things that we think are getting us closer to God can actually be the thing keeping us from God. All right, then verse 11, Jeremiah 7, 11 is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. Now remember, Jesus quotes the same concept in the, in the Gospels because the temple has been turned into basically a den of thieves. And, but it's a den of thieves that's not very well hidden. Verse 12, But go ye now unto my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it, for the wickedness of my people. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time here talking about Shiloh, but we'll get a, a just, I'm going to read just a little bit of information so that we can do that. I covered this a lot in the podcast. We spent, what, I don't know, two, three hours working on Shiloh. I gave everyone assignments on Shiloh, but I'll just read a little bit here from two sources, all right? Source number one says this. Shiloh was the central city of Israel, the religious center for almost 400 years. It was the place where the tabernacle of meeting and the altar of God stayed for this long period. Shiloh enjoyed all this glory for hundreds of years, but it came to an abrupt end. Now, if y'all, haven't, if y'all didn't listen to the podcast or didn't participate in the study, you may not know this, but if you've, if you've been reading your Bible, you may. Does anybody know where it first came to an end? What first brought Shiloh to an end? 
Okay, for, it's 1 Samuel 4, and the Philistines overran Shiloh. Right? That's the first one. That's the one we spent uh, multiple hours on. We reviewed a, a sermon on, and we did a lot of work on 1 Samuel 4 and all of the issues surrounding it. Okay? So that's the first place. Then the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel many years after that. All right? So first the Philistines and second the Assyrians, meaning that something happened to it two different times, which again just shows the pattern of constant problems. All right? Um, If we read uh, something else about Shiloh, they state it this way. If I can find it. Uh, God used Shiloh as an example, located about 18 miles north of Jerusalem. Shiloh was the first location of the tabernacle. It had been the central sanctuary for Israel before Solomon's temple was built. Around 1050 BC, the Philistines approached Shiloh and were met by Israel's army. When the Israelites saw they were losing the battle, they sent for the Ark of the Covenant, which represented then to, to them God's presence, much like the temple did to the people in Jeremiah's day. They used it like a sort of good luck charm, but the Israelites were soundly defeated. The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and apparently uh, destroyed Shiloh in 1 Samuel 4. All right? It, if God, and well, they don't talk about uh, the Assyrians. Well, no, actually here, I think later they, okay, yes. The Lord declared that just as their brethren in the northern kingdom of Israel was carried off into captivity by the Assyrians, they would be carried off into exile. Judah should have learned from the lessons of Shiloh in their northern kingdom that there would be severe consequences to their disobedience, all right? So there's a lot about Shiloh, but Shiloh is mentioned, and the main thing that he wants them to do in verse 12 is what? To go now unto my place, which was, please note, which was in Shiloh. Everybody see that in verse 12? Where I set my name at the first and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. Because of all of their issues, he then tells them, hey, go to Shiloh and see what happened. And it's supposed to serve as a warning to keep them from doing the same thing. Now, I believe, once again, what had happened at Shiloh has happened everywhere else. They kind of replace God with these other things. Now, that brings us now to verse 13 and following. I know it's 25 minutes trying to get us all on the same page, but I think it's, that's important. All right? Everybody ready? We got to go from 13 to 34 <laughs> in about 35 minutes. What, what, what do you think our possibility, what do you think we can do? Do you think we can accomplish it? Okay, well, I think you're wrong. Okay, but all right, here we go. No, we're going to try. All right. um, Here we go. And now, starting in verse 13, Jeremiah 7, 13. And now, because you have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, but you heard not. And I called you but you answered not. Now, I really want you to think long and hard about verse 13 in light of everything that we spent 20 minutes just talking about. Once again, I'm going to keep emphasizing this theme that the prophets, the sacrifices, the temple, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, all of these things actually became the replacement for God. They got in the way of God. Because here, what do we have? What do we hear right there in that verse? 
God is speaking, and what is he saying to the people? Yeah, I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, but you heard not. Now, it's obviously it's using kind of a little bit of figure of speech there, right? Because God is saying that he did what? I got up early in the morning, okay? I got up early in the morning to call to, call to you, right? I got up early. And what did they do? They didn't listen. They didn't listen. They didn't listen in any way. Uh, and speaking, but you heard not. I called you, but you did not answer. Now, be, okay, well, yeah. Okay, well, I mean, that's the NIV. I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, we, if, we, if we look at the differences between the NIV and uh, yeah, we'd be spending, all we would do is spend every sermon going, well, there's so many differences. The Christian standard, yeah, I know, the Christian standard, same way, all right. But, which is sometimes maddening that there can be so many differences. But the point is, God is calling and calling and calling and calling them. Now, here's the thing. If you would have asked the people, would they have said, well, well, of course, would they have said, no, we're not listening to God, or would they have said that they are listening to God? Right, I mean, they go, they go to the temple, right? They do sacrifices, right? Right? I mean, isn't that the whole, that's why, where, where is Jeremiah? Is that the temple, right? That's where the people are coming. It's not like the people are like, we don't care. We don't worship God. We're done with that. No, the, that, that makes it like, I want to just realize that that's always the difficulty. Like, it's one thing to preach to people who are like, I'm done with church. I'm not going to church. I'm finished with church, right? That's much more easier to deal with. Right? You can you can say, here's God's word, and, and you can have a conversation. It's the people who think that they hear from God and they, they know what God says. That's the net, that's the that's the worst conversations to have. In fact, that's why I always say, give me lost people, don't give me Christians. Why can you not have in many cases any meaningful conversation with Christians? Well, not that they, they think they're good and don't need it. They they believe that. That they hear God, right? You're like, no, you don't hear God. No, I do hear God. You don't hear God. No, you hear, no. Everyone, because when it comes to God's word, everyone thinks that they understand it and they hear, right? So you can have someone over here doing this and you're like, well, the scriptures say, I mean, we've watched this play out over the last few weeks in the Southern Baptist Convention where it's turned into an absolute you know, war happening, right? We see it in the United Methodists. The Southern Baptists, remember the whole, the, everyone, if you've been paying attention, the big controversy, what's the big controversy going on in the Southern Baptist Convention right now? Yeah, women pastors, right? So Rick Warren came back and tried to say, hey, reinstate us because they had been basically thrown out of the Southern Baptist. And they were like, nope, we're not going to have, we're not going to have women pastors. We're not going to have women pastors. What Rick Warren believes there should be women pastors after his intense study of Scripture. The people saying that he's wrong believe he's wrong after their intense study of Scripture. Then Elevation Church, what, they have 10,000, 20,000 people. They just withdrew from the Southern Baptists because of the, the issue of women pastors. They have women pastors. Then uh, Piper comes out and say, women shouldn't even be in charge of parachurch ministries. They shouldn't even be in charge. And it's like, well, women should just, I, I guess women should just shut up and never say another word about anything. But the point is, every side believes. They heard, they've heard from God from Scripture. Do you see how maddening that is? 
Now they've got prophets telling them they're okay. They got prophets telling. Do you think those prophets were saying, we, we, we believe this because we don't know the law? Or would they be saying they, do, they know this because they would probably be quoting that, wait a minute, Scripture, the, the, the Old Testament tells us that God is going to bless us and that God, like, they would be using their, their Scripture and someone else would be using different Scripture. That, I, I, that is the most, those kind of verses drive me crazy because there was a time in my Christian life that the issue would be like, people won't study, people won't read, people won't, and, and, and just, but then you come to realize the, the people who disagree read and study just as much as you do, right? Agreed? I mean, I'm saying that the people who, the, the theologians who are on this side of an issue, they believe that the scripture is just is as clear for them as we say is for us. That is maddening. You think that there should be a place. Remember, the battle here is between not God and a pagan nation. The battle is here between whom? Yeah, the people who have the law, the people, this is, and, and, and he's like, you don't listen to me. Look at verse 14. Therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein you trust, and unto the place where I gave you, and to your father says, I've done to Shiloh. In other words, the same thing that happened over in Shiloh is going to happen here. Because guess what? Whether it's the north, whether it's the south, <laughs> what, is the tr- what is the similarities between both? Well, they're sinners. That's the, that's the common theme here, right? Rebellion, 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 rebellion. And if you go backwards, you find rebellion. If you go to the present of Jeremiah's day, rebellion is sin. And if you go all the way to the time of Jesus, rebellion. And once Israel's wiped out in 70 AD, what do you have moving forward? You have the church, and it is constantly filled with the same problems. The same problems problems. Verse 15, I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. Therefore, pray not for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. That's That's a crazy, that's a crazy place to get when God is basically like, that's it, don't pray for them anymore. That's it, the end. Don't pray for them anymore. Don't. Now, and it's kind of a it's kind of a catch twenty two here. It's a little kind of it's a it's like it's a little frustrating in some ways because one, well, wait a minute, God, you chose this nation knowing exactly they were going to end up here, right? Two, you didn't stop the false prophets from coming. In fact, you sent the, and we can go on and on and on and on. There's all kinds of issues here, but. On a roundabout way, hey, don't pray for them, but it doesn't really matter if they pray for them or don't pray for them, right? I mean, when you think about it logically, this is kind of a very frustrating verse. Don't pray for them. Well, who cares? If if they pray for them, they're still going into captivity, right? And if you don't pray for them, they're still going to be returned to the land. They're still coming back. Right, like, it's like, it's like, hey, whether you pray or don't pray, this is going to play out the exact same way, right? If they pray, how long are they going to be in captivity? If they don't pray, how long are they going to be in captivity? If they pray, are they coming back from captivity? 
If they don't pray, are they coming back from captivity? Whether they pray or don't pray, does God make all these glorious promises to Israel that have yet to be fulfilled? Yes. Are those promises going to be made whether people pray or don't pray? Yes. Okay. Are those promises going to be fulfilled whether people pray or don't pray? All right. So then like, what's the point of telling them not to, like, it just seems like a random thing. I think the, I think the main point is, I think God is saying this more, not for practical reasons. I think he's saying this more for what reason? Yeah. How bad your situation is. Your, your situation is so bad that don't even bother praying. I'm not going to hear you. I think it's more to emphasize. I think, I mean, because I'm just saying from a logical standpoint, everything's going to happen whether they pray or don't pray. <laughs> okay. It's, it's irrelevant whether you pray for them. Right. All right. Then starting in verse 17, what happens in verse 17? 17. And let's see, we'll try to get to 17 to 24. Okay. We I'll try to get there by 1045. We'll see. All right. Here we go. Seest thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? Right? So, hey, do you not know what's going on here? Right now, he's going to once again lay out. There's a repetitiveness to this that at times can be just frustrating because you're like, we get the point, right? I mean, by this point, has any already not made the point? The point is how bad they are. But he's he's gonna he, he's gonna he, but he keeps yeah he, he keeps adding more specific examples. What is this example that he's about to give us? Verse eighteen: the children, the children do what? Gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings under other gods that they may provoke me to anger. Now, the fact that it says queen of heaven obviously raises a couple of questions. Who is the queen of heaven? So let's just do a, I I was almost going to make this an assignment for the Bible study exercise, but then I looked, there's not, there's a lot of disagreement over who the queen of heaven is. All right. So then I was like, you know what? That's not going to probably benefit anyone. So, so let's do this first and foremost. Let's just do this. If you look at 718. Because I uh, because these things drive me crazy sometimes. Because sometimes when you uh, look at these kinds of verses and then you go to the commentaries, you'll realize that there's like you know, fifty pages of debate. Well, if we had some issue, there wouldn't be debates if we had some clarification, right? But the thing is, whenever you get into all of these debates, it always frustrates me because if you're not careful, you get into the debates and you miss what. The main point. So, stepping back before we try to at least look at the queen of heaven and look at some of the options. What is the main point of the verse? Yeah, the whole family is involved in false worship. Whether you know the queen of heaven or not, you know this. It's obviously a false god. It's an idol. It's something along those lines. Now, if you have a study Bible, does it identify who the queen of heaven is okay workmanship of heaven okay uh, has, does niv say queen of heaven okay good all right all right just see if you see what you can find 
Well, look it up. You grab a Bible dictionary, look it up and see if it does make a reference to queen of heaven. Let's see. That'll be, that'll be fun. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but just because, oh, there's an entry. Oh, good. I didn't even think about looking at that. I was going to approach it a little differently, but okay. What, what page is that? 1057. 1057 in the Bible dictionary. Oh, here we go. Queen of heaven. Yes, a fertility goddess to whom the Israelites, especially the women, offered sacrifices and worship in the days before the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah. In the time of Jeremiah, many people in Jerusalem and other cities of Judah worshiped the queen of heaven. Their worship included burning incense, pouring out drink offerings to her. This was obviously a form of idolatry, but it is not clear exactly which pagan god was worshipped. Please note, it was not clear. Okay, does everybody read it? It was not clear which pagan god was worshipped. Please note, they go, the phrase queen of heaven may be a title for the goddess Ishtar, right? Perhaps the same goddess as the biblical Ashtoreth. Cakes were also baked in honor of the queen of heaven. These cakes may have been in the shape of stars, crescent moons, or the female figure. The worship of this goddess was one of the evils that brought God's judgment upon Judah. Now, some people, if you have have a mobile device or a phone, open up Google and type in queen of heaven Catholicism or Queen of Heaven Catholic Church. Because a lot of times this becomes a major issue here, all right? Okay, well, that's a whole different story. We won't go to the Revelation passage and because nobody can agree on anything in that passage, okay? Um, the, the queen of heaven here is mentioned, see what verse is that in Roman, uh, Jeremiah 7, what verse, verse uh, 18, okay. Um, okay, there we go, a title given to the Virgin Mary. All right, yes, there, there, uh, th- uh, th- this is what one commentary says. Mary is sometimes given the title the Queen of Heaven. This co- commentary says the title sets off alarm bells for anyone who know the book of Jeremiah. I think it is maybe a little concerning that Mary would ever be given the title Queen of Heaven. Right now, some people you don't want you don't want you don't ever want to do this. You don't want to overstate something, but you don't want to understate something. Correct. I will argue this, um, if, if you were to argue that Mary should be called queen of heaven, first you would need a biblical justification for doing so, right? Okay, is Mary ever referred to as queen of heaven? I don't want to spend too much time on this, but we have to spend a little bit. Okay, some, now some may try to make a, an argument that way because Jesus is king, his mom would be queen. Okay, possibly, okay. Uh, look at Revelation 12, since Stephen brought it up and want to create all this problem and difficulty and, and you know, never-ending controversy. 
All right, but here we go. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. We'll at least deal with this to some level. We don't want to get too far from the original context, but we can't. We have to at least deal with this. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. We have a wonder in heaven. And what is this wonder in heaven? A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Now the fact that she's described this way, you could argue she is where? In heaven. And she's kind of described in a queenly manner because she has a crown, right? All right, so therefore she would be the queen at least in heaven or maybe the queen of heaven. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her son as soon as he was born. Now, who typically we believe the dragon was trying to, to destroy which child? Christ, that would make the woman Mary, and therefore Mary would be, it would be fair to call her the queen of heaven. Now, some people say that that should not be understood to be Mary, that should be understood to be Israel. Okay, well, I'm, even if it's a sign and it's Mary, some, some believe it's not pointing to Mary, it's pointing to Israel. Okay. Right, but then do we understand Israel's being the one giving birth to Jesus? So there's a pro- problem. So I can understand it. I, I mean, you can make a good argument that it's Mary. So here's the issue. There's someone in the, there's a, a, a false god or a false goddess in the Old Testament called the Queen of Heaven. If you're to assign Mary that same title, is it, is it idolatry and is it wrong? Well, they would argue Revelation 12 proves it. Right. Now, what I'm saying is, if Jeremiah, the queen of heaven, I'm not saying it's the same thing. What I'm saying is, in Jeremiah, there's the queen of heaven. Some people say because there's this false god called the queen of heaven, then to refer to Mary as that is basically recreating that form of idolatry. It's basically a form of idolatry, that it's idol worship, that it's Mary worship. All right? So, I'm saying if if in Jeremiah... There is a false goddess called the Queen of Heaven. To refer to Mary as the Queen of Heaven, is that wrong, or do they have scriptural justification into doing so? Now, my thing is would be more not the title. Right? It was what you do with the title, right? Now, the fact that you pray to Mary, there's now where I believe worship comes in, because I believe praying to her is now a problem, Right? Okay, I believe there, that's where, I think how you, how you, uh, not, not the title given to her, but what you do in relation with that title. And, if, and, and to give her the title Queen of Heaven, I mean, you, you, you're going out on a limb a little bit because you are trying to claim that Revelation 12 is 
describing her that way so that we will understand her to be a queen. Now, one, there's not even agreement on how, but they don't, for the Catholic Church, they don't need agreement on it, right? They just need the magisterium to say Revelation 12 is about Mary. Now, we, we hate that as Protestants. We hate that as Protestants. But for us, our option is, well, every individual becomes the magisterium to say, this is what it is, right? Because I can preach and go, I can preach a sermon going, that's Mary. And then literally someone can stand up and tell me, you're wrong. And just go find another church, right? I mean, like, that's the way it works. It's like, so I don't know which, I don't know which system is better, okay? I don't know which system is better. Our system is, you don't need seminary, you don't need to study, you don't need a Bible education. All you got to do is tell the pastor that he is wrong, and you become the authority, right? So there you go. But uh, so there's the queen of heaven. So the main thing is what, that, what Jeremiah, what God is trying to communicate is what is going on in the streets? Full-blown idolatry, all right? Verse 19, do they provoke me to anger? Saith the Lord, do they not provoke themselves to the confusion of their own faces? Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, mine anger, my fury shall be poured out upon this place, upon man, upon beast, upon the trees of the field, upon the fruit of the ground, and it shall burn and shall not be quenched. Not a... Not such a good situation, is it? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, put your burnt offerings, put your burnt offerings unto your sacrifices and eat flesh. What do you think is going on in verse 21? Okay, well, there is some sarcasm going on here, okay? I'll read from one co- uh, commentary. So they say, they, they translate it this way. Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. The burnt offerings were to be completely burnt before God. Here, God said, you aren't giving these burnt offerings to me anyway, so you might as well eat them as you do your other sacrifices. Hey, go ahead, go ahead, do your burnt, oh, and go ahead and eat it as well, because you're not giving it to me anyway. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're not, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, in other words, you're not even worshiping me anyway. So just go ahead and, and do it that way. That, that seems to be uh, the idea, all right? The essential feature of the whole burnt offering was that it was entirely consumed by fire. We see this in Leviticus chapter 1. Unlike the other offerings, where at least a portion was shared in the priests or the worshipers, God is virtually saying, what does it matter to me? Eat, eat it. It doesn't matter. It's a waste of time. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, in other words, hey, you burn offering, but you know, then go ahead and just add it to the other and eat it because it's just as irrelevant. In other words, the burnt offering is about as, as, as relevant as what? The other sacrifices that you're doing. All right, everybody's, I, I, so everybody understands that? 
All right, verse 22. For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded, for I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. Now, this is interesting. What, is he, what does he seem to be saying in verse 22? Well, we'll just stay with verse 22 so that we at least understand. When they first came out of the land of Egypt, God didn't say anything about burnt offerings or sacrifices, right? In other words, when, when, well, the first thing he gave them was what? Before that. But he didn't say it. He gave them the Ten Commandments. Before, before all of this other stuff comes up, he gave them the Ten Commandments. Does that make sense? All right. So the point is, hey, um, in fact, as one commentary put it, when God gave Israel the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, there was nothing about sacrifices or priesthood that only came later once Israel, as, as they put it, had accepted the covenant. The point is clear, God's first priority for Israel was obedience. Sacrifice and the priesthood were secondary. So, let's go back and read it now. And now we'll put 23. For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Walk ye in all the ways that I commanded you, that it may be well unto you. So what they put the emphasis on, they put the emphasis on the fact that, hey, you're supposed to obey before you offer any kind of sacrifice. Now, I I do understand the, the chronological order being put forth here, my only, my only concern about it would be this. First, obviously the sacrifices were happening in some ways. Don't, don't we think there was like the, the idea of sacrifice happened or was at least hinted before? Can we agree? Yeah, Abraham, right, okay. So I believe that, and not only, we can go all the way back to the garden when God put animal skin. So I think the concept was already there, but I understand in this point. Here's what I would say though. Because once again, Israel continues to go through the exact same problems over and over and over and over again. I think the, I think the emphasis is more on this fact that no matter what happened to Israel, they kept repeating the same cycle over and over and over and over. So yes, he wants to emphasize the obedience, but the obedience was, was in relationship to the law. And what does the law do? It reveals... It condemns. So the sacrifice was more there for what purpose? To offer a covering because they were never going to obey. So the emphasis here is back on obedience, but the emphasis back on obedience is only going to lead them right back to the point of being revealed as being disobedient. So I, the, the, the answer over and over and over in Jeremiah is obedience, but obedience is... it. it I mean, look, they were, they were failing before Jeremiah. They were failing during Jeremiah. They were going to fail after Jeremiah. They're going to fail uh, leading up to 70 AD. And then once the, the church comes along, the church is filled with the exact same failures that Israel was failing, just maybe in a slightly different way. All right. So I think, I think it's hard not to, to see the, almost the futility of the entire discussion about obedience because it's only going to lead to 
one more disobedience. And look at verse 24. We're going to run out of time. But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart and went backward and not forward. So, once again, what do we have? Them not hearing right, or hearkening nor inclining, but they walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart and went backward and not forward. The same concept shows up over and over and over. This has been repeated now, How I don't even know how many times. One, it's been talked about multiple times. They keep going backwards. Second, it's been repeated over and over and over that they keep not listening. Over and over and over, they think that they're in the right, but they're actually in the wrong. They got false prophets telling them everything is going to be okay when actually it is not. They keep finding themselves in the same pattern, the same problems over and over and over and over and over again, yet it doesn't, fit, it, it doesn't fix their problem. So the emphasis on obedience is really an emphasis on what is the solution. We talked about this on Wednesday. It, it's offering a law solution. And the, does the law ever fix the problem? No, it never fixes the problem. I mean, look, you, there's not even a debate about this. Just go from Genesis, not just to Malachi, go to Genesis to Revelation. Over and over and over, the law is given, and over and over, people do what? Disobey it. They disobey it because of a sinful nature. The sinful nature is not eradicated. It wasn't eradicated in Israel. It's not eradicated in us, even in salvation. We all maintain the same sinful nature. Therefore, what is going to be the common experience? And it was the common experience in the life of Israel, and it's the common experience in the life of a believer. Sin, right? Because God's law demands what kind of, of obedience? Perfect, personal, right? Exact, entire, and perpetual, right? Therefore, and again, we know the scriptures I'm going to give you. We can just take a couple of them. Love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Do we ever do that personally, perfectly, entirely, exactly, and perpetually? No. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do we ever do that perfectly, personally, entirely, exactly, perpetually? No. Be holy as God is holy? No. So it means we're in a perpetual state of? disobedience. So if to say obedience is the answer is only going to lead to, it's only going to lead to a couple of issues, depression and discouragement, and then just give up, right? I mean, a lot of people do. They're just like, look, I tried the Christian thing. It didn't work. Or it leads to self-righteousness where you pretend to be that which you're not. None of us ever will be, never come close. Or it should do what? Break humble and drive us to Christ, which is his sacrifice. And then in that sacrifice, remember the whole Protestant Reformation is based off Christ saves us not by an infusing a righteousness into us, but by imputing a righteousness or accrediting it to our account. That's our only answer. Jeremiah never points him really directly to that answer, does he? He just hits them over and over again with what? Law, 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 law. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Most preachers come along. They take the book of Jeremiah. And what do they do? They preach it as law. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Everyone's like, oh, that was, I'm so convicted. I'm going to do this. But then does anyone ever actually perform it? No. And, but then you have to either start pretending that you are, which then creates self-righteousness. and then, Or it, can, it creates an atmosphere where you feel like you've got to condemn everyone else's sin to make you feel better about their own, which creates problems. Now, we're going to have to stop right there because, yeah, we're out of time. So...
as people come in for the next hour, we will have to, I know we didn't finish what we needed to. We needed to finish all of chapter 7 in this hour, and Stephen's fault for bringing up Revelation chapter 12. So uh, that's whose fault we'll play. All right. 24. All right, so we'll, yeah, now we're going to be in a mess in the next hour, aren't we? Yeah. All right, we'll see. We'll see. We need to be currently right now, like in Jeremiah 20 is where we need to be. So we're so far behind, it's not even funny, but that's okay. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, as we see the demands of your law and the perfection that it calls for, the only thing that we can see is that we fall way short of it. Israel fell short of it. Judah fell short of it. We fall short of it. The church falls short of it. And our only hope has ever been in the sacrifice of your son and in the imputed imputed righteousness that is given to us by faith. That's our hope. That's what we should trust in. And that's what we should find comfort in. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...